So when the people of Israel came out of their slavery in Egypt, one of the things that God did is that he invited Moses, their leader, up to the mountaintop to speak with Moses for a time. And as he spoke with Moses, he gave Moses directions for the nation. You might remember this. And, and what he gave them was a, a lot of different things. He gave Moses the Ten Commandments. But he also gave Moses the description for a brand new tabernacle, a tent that the people of Israel were supposed to build according to God's specifications. And what that was going to be for was for them as they sojourned, and then once they got into the promised land, they would set up this tabernacle and they would offer these sacrifices to God. And there were a lot of different elements to this tabernacle. There was an altar uh, where they would offer the major sacrifices on the outside of the tent. Then there was, when you went into the tent, only the priests would go in, but when you went into the tent, there was a table where they would offer this bread every day before the Lord. There was a candlestick, a set of seven candlesticks that were to be continually lit before the Lord. And then there was a smaller altar, an altar of incense. And then there was another veil. And behind that veil, a smaller room where this, sub, uh, this uh, thing called the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to reside. And the Ark was the place that God said that he would meet with and speak to and direct the nation. So when the high priest went in to be with the Lord, the Lord would direct the people from that place. And for years, by the time of David, the Ark has been neglected by the people of Israel. In fact, uh, the story of First and Second Samuel, which is really not like book one and book two, it's like, it's basically like, there's the first part of the story, ran out of scroll space, and then there's the second part of the story. It's just Samuel. That's how the people of Israel would have thought about First and Second Samuel, just Samuel, the writings uh, that record the story of Samuel and his life. And the, the beginning of First Samuel, the ark of God was uh, taken by the Philistine people. Eventually, they gave it back because, I mean, if you read the story, it's rather humorous. It didn't go very well for them to have the ark in their territory. So they gave it back to the people of Israel who suffered some judgment initially because they looked into the ark. They took the lid off the ark and looked into it, which God had forbade them to do. So many of them were struck. And then they gave it away to a particular man, a man named Ahinoam. We're going to see him later in this text. And it dwelled there in his home for a long period of time. And during the era that Saul was the leader of Israel, uh, the ark was neglected by the people of God. In fact, in the parallel passage to what we're about to read in 1 Chronicles, this is what David said. He said, let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. That neglect of seeking the ark of God became, you know, a description of their neglect of the worship of the Lord in general. You know, the fact that they neglected the ark doesn't just mean that they neglected some kind of ceremony. It meant that they neglected their relationship with God. How many of you understand that that is possible? It is possible to neglect 
your relationship with God. It is possible to neglect having him at the center of who you are. And when the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness with the ark, God would always put the ark right at the center of everything that they did. So when they camped, it would be in the center. The the Levites would camp around it, and then all the other tribes, north, west, east, and south, they would camp around it in the way that God had ordained for them to, to camp. And then when they set out, Half the tribes would go out, then the ark would go out, then the other half of the tribes would go out. So the ark was always meant to be in the middle of God's people. This, I think, this idea of God being at the center of Israel, at the center of his people, at the center of our lives. I think that word center is a better word than saying the priority of our lives or the first in our lives. Because sometimes we think of that, of God in that way. Like he's number one in my life. And then there's number two, then there's three, then there's four, then there's five, then there's six. As if two through six have no relationship to number one. Now the reality is everything in my life should be centered around God. So if family is number two or church is number three, you know, that kind of thing, uh, the reality is it should just be that God is at the center of my family, that God is at the center of my church, that God is at the center of my friendship. So it's probably better to think of God, and, or at least as our desire for him, as being at the center of our lives. And so in this passage, David is going to work to get God at the center of Israel once again. And he was always going to be about this, by the way. This is him at 37 years of age trying to bring the ark to Jerusalem to put God at the center of the nation. And then during his entire reign, what's he going to do? He's going to worship the Lord, but he's going to write songs, prayers, the prayer book for the people of Israel. And then at the end of his life, like I alluded to last week, he's, he was going to initiate the future building of a permanent temple for God. So David's whole life as the leader of Israel, he wanted God to be at the center of their nation. This helps us understand a little bit what God saw in David, because even though we read about a lot of his faults, God saw a heart that was, at the end of the day, devoted to him and loved him, wanted to prioritize, have God at the center uh, of the nation. So that's what we're going to read about today. uh, David taking the ark, bringing it into uh, the center of Israel. And as we go through this, I'm just going to try to point out to you some things that I think the original readers of this passage would have needed to learn or would have gleaned from the events as they unfold. Okay, so let's go through it, starting out in verse 1. It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. So big celebration. A lot of people gathered together for this moving of the ark. And David arose, verse 2, and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. I misspoke earlier. I called him Ahinoam. I knew when I said it out loud. I don't think that's his name. It's Abinadab, which was on the hill. And, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. So it's this big 
celebration. 30,000, you've got this you know, big thing. They put it on the cart. They're cruising in. They're going to bring it to Jerusalem. And Abinadab, Abinadab's house is actually not that far from Jerusalem, so it's a short journey. Everybody's excited. There's this fervor. It's David's first move. First big thing, bring the ark uh, to Jerusalem. And David, verse 5, and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So they had all the music just banging as they're bringing the ark into Jerusalem. So everybody's happy. Everybody's excited. This is a real beautiful moment. The songs are being sung. The music is happening. David is, you know, celebrating. This is just a beautiful moment for the people of Israel. So let's read what happens next. It says in verse 6, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David, verse 8, was angry. It says that in verse 7 that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. But here in verse 8, David's anger was kindled also because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means break out against Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, uh, the Gittite. So a little cooling off period for the ark. David's like, man, I can't handle this thing. People are dying. We're trying to move it to Jerusalem. He's upset. And so he asks Obed-Edom, hey, will you guys watch it? And imagine being Obed-Edom. You know, there's King David. He's like, hey, I'm your king. This is what I need you to do. Like, why? Why do you need me to watch it? Well, someone died from touching it. Uh, and so there they have it in the house. You know, like kids don't touch the ark. You really don't want to touch that. So, again, there's all this excitement. They're going into Jerusalem. They have the ark, all this music. And then this huge bummer happens. I mean, this is like just a total killjoy kind of moment. The, the, the oxen begin to stumble on the threshing floor, and, and Uzzah, he sees that the ark is about to fall off of the car and he reaches out his hand it's just a reflex you know it's just a reflex he reaches out his hand to keep the ark from falling you know it it feels like a pretty innocent kind of thing for Uzzah to do and the Lord in his anger strikes Uzzah for what he'd done the first question obviously this brings up some questions in our mind now the first question that we might ask is what was the big deal about this? What was Uzzah's error? You know, what was his crime? Well, there are three specific things that were all wrong about this scene. Number one is that Uzzah was not a Levite, and more than, well, he was not a Kohathite Levite, and more than likely he wasn't a Levite at all. You see, God had ordained 
that certain parts of the sons, so, so Levi had three sons, Gershon, Merari, and Kohath. And God designated that those three sons, their descendants had a certain role in the worship of the Lord. And the sons of Kohath were the ones, not who went into the tabernacle to be with the Lord, but they were the ones who would move the tabernacle. Whenever the Lord moved, they would pack everything up in a very specific way. They would cover the ark in a very specific way. They would put the ark on these poles that actually were permanently supposed to be inside of the ark, on these four rings around the corner of the ark, and they were to carry the ark of the covenant. It actually says in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. So one of the first problems is that Uzzah was not a Kohathite Levite. So this is a disobedience to the Lord. Number two, another problem is that they were moving the ark with a cart rather than, as I just mentioned, via the poles covered up so that the people couldn't see it, let alone even touch it directly. Uh, instead, they were doing actually exactly what the Philistines had done a generation earlier. When the Philistines realized, man, we can't handle having the ark with us, they put it on a cart and had it pulled into Israelite territory. And apparently, when David organized this whole thing, that was the same thought. How did the Philistines move it? With a cart. Let's just do it the way the Philistines did it, rather than the way that God has told us to do it. But the big crime is that Uzzah touched the ark of God. In the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, when this story is told there, it says that God struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark and he died there before the Lord. The, the major ultimate crime was that no one was supposed to touch the ark of God. Now, here's the second question. Okay, now we understand maybe why God was angry with Uzzah. But the second question we would ask is, why would that anger God so much? You know, wasn't that reaction a little excessive and disproportionate to the crime? You know, it's like we might say like, okay, well, Lord, like it's clear you put it there in the word and everything like that. But of like all the sins that I can think of, you know, that's like not one that's really on the top of the list for me. You know, like the ark is about to fall and you balance it. That's death penalty stuff right there. So, you know, why would this anger God so deeply? Well, like I said, number one, the Kohathites had been sufficiently warned. But also, secondly, the pattern of God throughout his word is that when a new work is happening, there is a high standard that is set so that future generations will know what God desires. When the tabernacle was first built, years earlier, Aaron was still alive. And so the, the, the Aaronic priesthood was actually Aaron and his sons, his, his literal sons, not his grandsons or great-grandsons, but his actual sons. And a couple of his sons, it appears, we don't know exactly, but they did something. They offered this strange fire to the Lord. It was, an, it was an odd moment. And then the next 
after, after the Lord struck them, the next thing that happened was God prohibited them from drinking alcohol, the Levites, when they were serving the Lord. And so apparently they had maybe gotten drunk and done something that the Lord had told them not to do. But again, it was a new era. The, the tabernacle is built. God wanted to communicate to the priesthood, you must be holy as I am holy. Now I'm sure in the years that followed, in fact, we know this from reading the Old Testament, there were priests who did worse things than Aaron's sons, but that first action of God was to communicate to successive generations how to behave and how to act. We see this in this story. This was a new era, a new thing that God was doing. David was king. Jerusalem was a new center of God's people. This was a new era. And we also see this in the New Testament when the church gets going. You know, a new era, a new season, a new work that God is doing on earth. And you might remember the story there in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira, a married couple, they saw people selling land and giving all of the proceeds of the sale to the believers, to the congregation. And they liked the praise that some of these people were getting. And so they sold a piece of land but they wanted to keep some for themselves, which was totally their business to do. That's what Peter said. He's like, you didn't have to give anything, but they wanted to keep some of it, which was fine. But instead of saying, hey, we sold a piece of land, we kept some of it for ourselves. You know, we have to, after all, we have a, like a college fund that we're trying to save up for, you know? So like, that's what we did. And we just decided to give part to the church. Rather than doing that, they said, we're giving everything when they only gave part. That was their crime. Not that they didn't give everything, but that they said they gave everything when they didn't. And the Lord struck them. Ananias first, and then a few hours later, his wife Sapphira. Now, the thing is, the Lord hasn't acted that way to every successive act of hypocrisy throughout the church. Can you imagine if that's the way that it worked? Anytime a believer said they were something that they weren't, just you're dead, you know, kind of thing. But it was a new era. And in these new moments, God wanted to communicate uh, the high standard that he has for his people. Also, another thing that we should consider is that if we are naturalists, then this is the worst possible outcome. You know, if, if you just think that all there is is this life and Uzzah dies, it's terrible to us. But there's a great chance that Uzzah's in heaven. And there's a great chance that many people who learned from Uzzah's lesson in that era and even in our era about the holiness of God are in heaven because of his story and testimony. So if you're a naturalist, then yeah, this is the worst thing ever. But we're not. You know, we believe that there's an eternal God. But then also... What we would learn here is that God's holiness must be respected. That's kind of the big first lesson here, is that God's holiness must be respected. You see, every time the people of Israel and every time the church has or have had a low view of God, uh, everything is endangered. In Israel's day, if they had a low view of God, then assimilation into paganism was the result. They neglected the worship of God. And when that happened, they were endangered as a people. And God had promised that the Messiah would come from them. 
So in a sense, they were endangering salvation for the nations when they had a low view of God. Same thing happens to us in a different kind of way. For them, it was the Messiah was coming, and they were endangering the coming of the Messiah through their lack of respect for the holiness of God. For us in the church era, when we disrespect the holiness of God and our lives look just like the world around us and we don't have a high view of the Lord, we're not endangering the coming of Christ, but what we are endangering is the personal coming of Christ and the individual people that the Lord has called us to reach. Our unholy lives get in the way of not the Messiah, but the Messiah's message. So the holiness of God must be respected. Now, our fullest, this is important when you're reading the Bible, you know, because unfortunately some people, it's like this is their only picture of God. You know, the idea like God is striking people dead, you know, there in the Old Testament, and that becomes their only picture of God. Uh, this should be part of your picture of God, absolutely. You know, if you asked Uzzah on this day, is God just a fuzzy teddy bear, grandpa Santa Claus figure who just lets you do whatever you want to do? Uzzah would say, no, (laughs) he's holy. I wasn't allowed to do that. Uh, But this is only part of the picture of God. Our fullest picture of who God is, the fullest, deepest revelation of who God is, where do we discover that? Jesus in the cross of Christ, right? That's where we see the pinnacle of who God is, the clearest revelation of who God is. And what we see there on the cross is that there is a holy God who is angry about sin, so angry that he was willing to strike himself for us. So in a sense, what Uzzah went through, it points us forward to the day when God would actually fully satisfy his wrath. I mean, if he was upset about this, and imagine what he gets upset about when he sees what sin is doing to humanity but he was willing to strike his own son to die for the sin of the world. Okay, so enough about Uzzah. Hopefully, hopefully I've explained that to you. But in verse, so, so David takes the ark and he gives it to this guy, Obed-Edom. Let's see what happens next in verse 11. It says, And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom for the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of the Lord. When David hears this, he's going to say to himself, well, hey, if Obed-Edom is blessed by the presence of the Lord, I'm not going to let him have all the blessings. So he's going to figure out how to get the ark to Jerusalem. This is really interesting. Three months, the ark is there with Obed-Edom and he's just blessed. Now we don't know how he's blessed. Doesn't tell us that. Even in the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles, it doesn't tell us specifically how he's blessed. There's a couple clues. First of all, it says there that he and all his household was blessed. So it was not just him, it was his whole family. And then also, it tells us all that belongs to him. That was the report, all that belongs to him. So it might have been some kind of prosperity that came into Obed-Edom's house, but it was him, everybody in his house, maybe his Uh, wife got pregnant, maybe he had sons, and maybe their wives got pregnant, you know, who knows, like the family started growing, maybe he had like a disrespectful teenager or something like that, and like during those three months, they just acted like an angel 
from the Lord. And so, someone's like, man, the Lord is blessing the house of Obed-Edom. Who knows? But some kind of visible blessing from God came upon Obed-Edom's life. So we don't know how he was blessed, but it might be fun to imagine you know, how he was blessed. And the second thing that I think we can learn, you know, God is holy. There's something that the people who read this story for the first time would have gotten from it, but also they would have gotten, God is a blessing God. And when we are in appropriate relationship with him, his blessings pour out, flow into our lives. We don't always know how, but we know that he will. And so David, he hears this and he goes, okay, you know, I want, I want that blessing. And so verse 12, the second part of it, it says, so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. This time, this is how he did it. Verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David, verse 14, danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod, so he took off all his kingly garments, just had his undergarment before the Lord. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. All right, so they moved the ark this time in a different way than they moved it the first time. Uh, here we learn that rather than you know, put it on a cart, they carry it. And uh, rather than just kind of move it on into Jerusalem, they still are singing, but they're offering these sacrifices. Every six steps, they offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Probably it wasn't like, you know, six steps, and then it was like, hey, let's, we need a sacrifice. Probably they had them organized, you know, every six steps, like this is going to be the day we're going to have all these sacrifices going all the way to Jerusalem, which again, it wasn't that far, but you know, it's going to be this visible thing of God, you are holy, we respect and we reverence you. Now again, I keep telling you that there's a parallel passage of this in 1 Chronicles. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, it tells us that David summoned the priests and he asked them to carry the ark after consecrating themselves. And listen to this, he says in 1 Chronicles 15 verse 13, because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So then they consecrated themselves and they brought up the ark of God. Apparently, during those three months, you know, remember what happened on day one with Uzzah, David was all angry at God. You know, he's angry that the, that the Lord did this. And he says, how could you do that? Somebody's right, God or David, <laughs> all right? You got to remember that in your own life when there's things you're like, Lord, why do you, somebody's right, either you or the Lord. And what David did for those three months, apparently, is he searched the scripture. They, he searched the scripture, and what he had discovered is he searched the word of God, is that he had moved it incorrectly the first time. And if he had another opportunity, he was going to move it in a biblical way. Again, I've said to you, what would the original readers of this passage have gotten? Well, number three, you know, number one, you know, God is holy. Number two, in proper relationship, God is a blessing God. But number three, God wants us to search the scriptures. 
God wants us to search His Word. I believe there's a lot of freedom in the Christian life. There's a lot of freedom to, you know, follow the Lord and, the, and follow the Spirit in the way that we're uniquely called to live this life. But there are some guardrails that the Lord has given to us. And we're to search the Scripture to see, Lord, how have you asked us individually and then definitely in a, as a church, corporately, collectively, how have you asked us to live as your people? God wants us to search the Scripture to understand those things. All right, so David here, he does that. He searches the Word of God. He's trying to learn the Word of God. Look, I know that there's information's flying around all over the place, and you can be helped by, you know, TED Talks and podcasts and blogs and things like that, but search the Scriptures. You know, let the, let the Word of God be authoritative in your life. Uh, figure out a way to not just on Sunday, because I don't think this is enough, but throughout your life to be feeding yourself on the Word of God, getting a good diet of God's Word into your life. Now, verse 16, it says, As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. If you haven't been here for a while, Michael was David's first wife. And uh, they were married when they were younger. She was the daughter of King Saul. Uh, she probably here thought she knew what a king should look like. <laughs> you know, her daddy was one. And she looks out the window, and she's probably already at this point a little upset with David. You know, because after David went off running into the wilderness, she got remarried to a guy named Peltiel. And when David was crowned as king, remember one of the requirements he gave to Abner? He says, you got to give me my wife, Michael, back. And Abner went to get Michael from Paltiel, and Paltiel followed along. He was weeping, you know, he's all sad. And then Abner's like, hey, I'll kill you, leave. And he goes back home, you know. And so there's a possibility that she's just kind of upset about all that. You know, here I am, I'm part of a harem, for one. That's not, a, nobody wants that. And then two, you know, like I had Paltiel, he loved me, you know. And, and now this woman who previously helped her Husband escaped from a window. She looks at him from a window and she despises him. She despises this exuberance before God. So we'll get back to her in a moment. But it says in verse 17, And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. So he, he reestablished the tabernacle there in Jerusalem. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Now, this is just a real powerful moment for Israel. Uh, David, you know, he had a lot going on in this scene. You know, we, we're reading a few elements of it. But I keep referring to the First Chronicles passage because First, First and Second Chronicles seems to have been written from the priestly perspective. So they talked a lot about this. They had a couple chapters dedicated to it because to them, this was a really big deal, the bringing in of the ark into Jerusalem. And there, they record that the Levites gathered thousands of them. They played music and sang the whole time. 
that David had the elders and the commanders of thousands with him. They sacrificed the whole way, as we've already read. They placed the ark in the tent that David had set up and offered these sacrifices. But also on this day, David appointed Levites for the perpetual service there in the tabernacle. It wasn't a one-day event in David's mind. It was the beginning of many days of worship of the Lord. And he actually installed some guys that you might recognize from your reading of the Psalms, Asaph and his sons were installed at this point. They became authors of some of the Old Testament Psalms, and they were perpetually uh, there from that day forward, servants in the house of the Lord. And also, as David is prone to do in monumental times of his life, he wrote a song. He wrote a song. It's Psalm 105. It's also recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Same song in two different places in the Old Testament. And one of the crescendo lines of that psalm, Psalm 105 verse 4 says, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. That's a beautiful line. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. I think what people would have received from this as they read it is something very simple. God is worthy of sacrifice. God is is worthy of sacrifice. Now, it's, it's interesting to study the sacrificial system. I realize even as I say that out loud, that sounds very nerdy. Some of you are like, that doesn't sound very interesting. <laughs> it's interesting to study the sacrificial system. Part of the reason it's interesting is because as it progressed over the years in Israel, God's message about the sacrifices shifted. Eventually, prophets came onto the scene years later who said, you're offering these sacrifices in a mechanical, robotic kind of way. It would be better for you not to offer sacrifices and give me the sacrifice of a contrite heart. That's what I really want. And in the New Testament, Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system. He became the ultimate sacrifice that every Old Testament sacrifice pointed towards or anticipated. Jesus fulfilled it. But then in the church era... We have this thing where both are really required. The heart, but also actually doing something. You know, not just emotions, God, I love you, but living it out with our lives. David is modeling that perfectly. Because these sacrifices that he's offering, the priests and the songs and everything, it wasn't just this mechanical outward thing for him. His heart was engaged, but it was costly as he worshiped the Lord in this kind of way. God is worthy of sacrifice. You see, the name Israel means God prevails. But at this point in their lives, God wasn't really prevailing. God wasn't on the throne in Israel. God wasn't leading the nation. They'd relegated him to a home. They'd re relegated him to be forgotten. But here they bring him in, and they begin to lay down their lives for him. Look, there are times where there's a gap between our name, who we are in Christ Jesus, and our actual experience. The Bible teaches we're new creations in him, that we're born again. If we're believers, that we're alive together with Christ, that we're created in Christ Jesus, that we've been brought near to him, that we're partakers of the promise in Christ, that we've been blessed 
in Christ Jesus. The Bible teaches these things about us. That's who we are in Him. Servants of the living God. Children of the living God. But a lot of times there's a gap between who the Lord says we are and the way that we live our lives. The way that we act. The way that we sacrifice and give to the Lord. But is the Lord the Lord of our lives? Well, it's not just about the heart. It's about actions. And I realize that a lot of times it's easy to just kind of go through the motions as a Christian. And my encouragement to you is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. He said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You see, when you begin to place your treasure, and really when you think about what your treasure is, it's your time and it's your money. When you think about putting your treasure into the things of the kingdom of God, your heart begins to follow. You see, we usually think about things the other way around. I'm, I'm going to put my time and my treasure wherever my heart is, whatever I'm passionate for, whatever I long for, whatever I desire. But that's not the way it works according to Jesus. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to follow. So, you know, if you spend, you know, hundreds of dollars buying those season tickets and going to every game and, you know, all of that, your heart is going to be there. Your heart is going to follow what your time and your treasure has, you know, been placed in. And, and so many people will do that and then wonder, why do I feel so lackluster about God? He feels boring to me. But when we place our treasure in the things of God, in the form of time and money, when we do that, our heart begins to follow. And here, the people who would read this story originally would have said, God is worthy of sacrifice. Now in verse 18, let's go on and see what happens to these people. It says, and when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. So here David acts like a priest and he blesses everybody. He's not a priest, he's not a Levite, but he does the priest thing and he blesses everybody. Maybe he even does the ironic blessing, you know, and pronounces it over the people of Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But after blessing them, he then gave them all this food. Some bread, some meat, some raisins to each one. What were these things? These were leftovers from the sacrifices. You see, it says that they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. The way the burnt offerings worked was uh, God gets everything. They just put it all on the altar. It was all for God. But the peace offerings, the way that worked was God would take part of the offering. And it, it, when you actually read what part of the offering he took, it's like the worst part. It's like the entrails, the fat, all this stuff. You're like, Ugh, don't really want that anyways. We kind of cut that out. But then the people, the priests would take some for themselves. And then the rest was given to the people. They were supposed to eat the meat on the day of the sacrifice, the bread on the day of the sacrifice, and the next day. And so David takes that meat and that bread and some of the raisins that were given, and he just gives it back to the people. 
And they're all excited. David blesses them. They get some food. They go home. This probably wasn't their like meat, their sacrifices anyways. It was all David's. And so they're just all excited and they go home. Everybody's excited. Everybody's blessed. Again, the original readers, what what would they have seen from this? They would have said, it is a joy to worship God. It is a joy to worship the Lord. He sends us home full. You know, we just heard that on that video a little bit earlier, right? You know, this, this married couple saying, we serve the Lord. And yeah, there's these times where the alarm clock goes off and it's like, man, we could just go to Big Sur today. You know, we could just, you know, go get, get a brunch, you know, at 1130 and just kind of do this whole thing. Like we could do that today, you know, like you don't think that I haven't thought about that. <laughs> All right. sun shining, you know, the whole thing. But then you come, you pour your life into some people and you realize, oh yeah, that's what life is all about. You walk away reconfigured, recalibrated. See, it's a joy to lay down your life to some degree for the Lord. They would have learned that. So David, verse 20, returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, uh, his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord. You know, it wasn't before the female servants, it was before the Lord, who, man, David, (laughs) it's sometimes a blessing to be quick. And sometimes it's not a blessing to be quick. (laughs) He's quick. He's good with words. He said, who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child till the day of her death. Some people read that as like a supernatural intervention kind of thing. Uh, I'm with those who just read it as a natural outflow of the fact that they became estranged. Uh, Some people will despise a worshipful life. You have to be ready for that. If you want God to be at the center of your life, you have to be ready for not every single person in your life saying, yippee, that's beautiful. Love it that the Lord's at the center of your life. There will be people who despise that. Believers will despise that. Believers will say, you need more balance. You need more moderation. You know, you're being being a little too extreme in your love for the Lord. But this has always been. We see it in the life of Jesus a couple different times powerfully. Remember the sinful woman who, in the house of Simon the Pharisee, she came in and she broke an alabaster flask before the Lord onto his feet. She wiped her feet with, his, with her hair, wiped his feet with her hair. And Simon the Pharisee said, if he knew who this woman was and the sinner that she was, he would not let her do that to him. But then Jesus gave a parable to communicate to Simon that when people are forgiven much, they love much. And that's what she had done. She was loving the Lord much because she'd been forgiven much. And then it happened again in a similar kind of way the week before Jesus died with Mary 
the sister of Lazarus and Martha. She came in and broke some, uh, a vessel of nard before the Lord, anointed his head and his feet. And Judas began to say, it should have been sold and given to the poor. And this, this disgruntled thing happened, but Jesus said, what she's done, anointing me for my burial, will be told of her as everywhere the gospel is proclaimed. He loved that exorbitant worship. I was reading a book recently by a woman named Lisa Harper called uh, The Sacrament of Happy. And she was telling the story in it of a worship leader friend of hers who was leading worship at a women's conference, a multi-denominational women's conference. And it kind of was funny the way it all worked out because they had a certain part of the sanctuary or the auditorium, a very conservative group was there. And then another part of the assembly was filled with a little bit more of a charismatic kind of group. And so as they're singing, the charismatic group is being charismatic and celebratory and excited, and the reserved people are like uncomfortable. And the leader of that group came to the worship leader during one of the breaks and said, hey, do you think you could talk to their leader and ask them to tone it down? You know, we're just feeling a little weird. It's a little much. And the worship leader like agreed at first and then talked to the leader and the other leader said, you know, yeah, we'll do that. That's fine. But that's so sad because if she only knew what the Lord had saved us from, she would understand why we're rejoicing in that kind of way over the Lord. And the worship leader eventually got up and just said, you know what, I can't do it, and just shared that story. <laughs> just said, look, God has done a powerful thing in the lives of these women. That's why they're rejoicing the way that they rejoice. So, you know, you have to be ready for that. Some people will despise a worshipful life. Now, in closing, we, you know, we've read the whole story. Let me make one last little point as I invite the worship team to come on up and close us out in, in a song of worship. Uh, it takes work to get God at the center of your life. It doesn't happen by accident. It takes work. I hope you've seen that from this story. And I want to actually read to you to close out this teaching from Psalm 132, which describes what David went through in this moment. It says in Psalm 132, if I could turn there, it says, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. Now, we've learned about a lot of hardships in David's life, right? Saul, Goliath. But here's what they say. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. What I wanted to show you is that in that song, when they're singing about David's hardships, it has nothing to do with Saul, has nothing to do with Goliath, and it has everything to do with having God at the center. That is hard. That is difficult. It doesn't happen by accident. Uh, it's something that we must continually readdress and say, God, are you at the center of my life? How do I need to repent of things and shift things so that you'll be at the center of of my life again. Just as worship was always under the attack in Israel, it is always under attack in your life as well. And if I had a dollar for every person I've ever seen get lit up by the Lord and then 
six months, two years later, fade away, I'd be a wealthy man. We must continue to say, Lord, I, I want you to be at the center of my life. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about Calvary Monterey and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.